Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are going to be looking at Palm Sunday today. We're going to be looking at the presentation of Jesus and the triumphal entry from Mark chapter 11. But before we do that, I want to just uh, highlight one thing for you, and and that has to do that there are, are certain stories, certain events, that the more we look at them, the more beautiful they are. The more we look at certain things, the more we discover this is, this is true of certain places in our world. I think it's true of even a place like Disney World, a place that is designed by artists, and every corner of that park is designed by artists, so that if you go year after year after year to a park like Disney World, what you'll see is, is more and more new things, hidden Mickeys here and there, and little, little secrets hidden around the park. It's just a place that is beautifully designed by an artist, and even though it is familiar it can have things that we can discover anew every time we visit. In a similar way, when we look at Mark chapter 11, we see a very familiar passage of Scripture, a passage of of Scripture that we've probably read since we were children or heard read to us since we were children. But though we are familiar with it, there are still beautiful treasures that we can see as we come to it anew each time. Because The events of the triumphal entry of Christ were designed by the master artist, by our God himself. And by looking at these events, we will see some wonderful things today. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, and as we look at it, I want to direct our attention to three things that I want us to consider from this passage. Three things that we've probably been aware of in the past, but we need to look at them afresh today And I pray that as we do so, God would give us a sense of awe and wonder at who he is and what he is accomplishing for us through Christ. So let's look at three things today from the verses that were just read earlier for us by Lydia um, in Mark chapter 11. Three things. The first thing that I want us to consider is this. I want us to consider the time. I want us to consider the time. And what I mean by that is I want us to consider the timing of the event of the triumphal entry of Christ. There's a lot that we can see if we look at the calendar and the clock around Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Mark 11. We know that God is sovereign over time. We know that he planned Jesus to come at just the right time. Generally speaking, from passages like Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, a verse that we read at Christmas time often, but this is what it says. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What that verse is telling us is it's telling us that at the fullness of time, at the right time, God sent Jesus into our world so that we could see him and interact with him, get to know him, and ultimately that he could present himself on Palm Sunday and walk towards the cross to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. The timing of that event was at the fullness of time. It was at the right time God was in control of those events. Now, we see that in Galatians 4, and it's more of a general statement, but what's even more fascinating is for us to look at a very specific 
timeline, a very specific time clock that lets us know that Jesus' presentation in Jerusalem was exactly right. And we see this by looking at the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Now, Daniel 9 is a prophecy that God gave to Daniel while God's people Israel were in exile in a foreign land. And while they were in exile in this foreign land, hundreds of years before Jesus was was born, they wondered when they would be able to return to the land that God had given them. They wondered when they would be able to return to Jerusalem. And so God gives a prophecy to Daniel to encourage and comfort his people about when they will be able to return to Jerusalem and what they can expect once they return there. And so in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, the prophecy goes this way. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointing one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a time of trouble. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, if that's the first time you've ever heard Daniel 9, 24 to 27 read, you're going, what in the world did you just read to us? And if that is the hundredth time that you've read that, you may be going, what in the world did you just read to us? And so it's helpful to get some explanation about what's happening because really this is a a wonderful section of God's Word. We're not going to be able to do it justice right now, but I think that what we see in Daniel 9 is a prophetic calendar. We see a calendar that points to the fact that Jesus came at just the right time. And this, this calendar, it flows from a timeline. And the timeline that Daniel gives us begins in 444 B.C. with a decree given to rebuild Jerusalem. That's when the clock starts. There will be a decree that will be given to rebuild Jerusalem. That happens in 444 B.C. It happens in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah as they return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. That decree comes in 444 B.C. Now, Daniel describes the next things that will happen in in terms of sets of seven. It's translated in the ESV as weeks, but it's really a set of seven. They're sets of seven years. And Daniel in his timeline tells us that there will be 69 sets of seven years or 483 years that will transpire from the time that decree is given until the Messiah comes. Now, when you adjust for the the lunar years and the the different calendars that the the Jewish people had with the calendars that we have, what what you find is that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem took place on March 30. 33 AD, the exact timeline after the decree given to rebuild the city. We need to consider 
the timing of Jesus coming. It happened right on schedule. It happened according to the providence and the plan of God from the start. Now, again, there are many things that we could talk about in Daniel 9, but I think the important thing for us to see right now from that passage is that Jesus came at the appropriate time. He came at the right time. Now, what else do we see about the timing of Jesus' arrival? Not only was it something God had prophesied down to a day for hundreds of years beforehand, but also Jesus came at the right time. And, and, he, and he entered Jerusalem on, on what day? What day did he enter? Well, we, we might say that he entered on a Sunday because we have Palm Sunday, right? And though palm branches were present and they were waved, Jesus didn't enter on a Sunday, we don't think. Matter of fact, it seems as though he entered on a Monday. When you look at the chronology of the events of the last week of Christ's life, it seems as though he entered on a Monday, not a Sunday. Now, that's significant for a reason. Because on the Monday of Passover week, that was the day that the Passover lambs were presented for the offering. That was the day they came into the city. And here Jesus comes, and how is Jesus described? He's described as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Friends, we need to consider the timing that God had on the triumphal entry. It shows us that God was not a day late. He was right on schedule according to his plan, according to his providence. Christ shows up at the right time as the Lamb of God presenting himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Now, I think it's important for us to consider the time, not just because that's interesting, though it is. And not just because it's prophetic and it shows that prophecy is real and true, though it is. I think it's important for us to remember that because we are people who struggle with God's timing. Do you struggle with God's timing? Do you ever think that God is late on something? Have you ever been in a situation where you're waiting on the Lord and you feel like it's taking forever? You're praying for a friend or a family member to to come to know the Lord, you're, you're praying for the results from a test to come back that will let you know the diagnosis, and instead of hearing on Friday, you go into the weekend, and you got to wait till Monday, and you're like, why, Lord, why are, why are we waiting? You ever lose your job, and you, you, you're hopeful that there'll be another paycheck that comes, but you don't know when that paycheck is going to come, and you're struggling through that even right now? Some of you right now where you're sitting, you're wondering about that? Do we struggle with the timing of God, don't we? Sometimes we're concerned that God is going to come too late. Sometimes we're concerned that God comes too early. Something shows up and we're like, well, this isn't the right time for that. We had other plans. What we see as we consider the timing of Christ's arrival in Jerusalem is we see that God has a plan. He's in sovereign over time and space. Jesus showed up right on time. We can have confidence that God is in control of time, including the timing of the events in our lives. Consider the time, one of the things that we can see from this passage. But the second thing that I want us to do is not just consider the time, but I want us to consider the king. You see, when we gather to talk about the triumphal entry, when we gather on Palm Sunday, we should never think that this day is about palm branches. It's not. Palm branches were present there. It's appropriate for us to wave them today. It reminds us of the entry of Christ into Jerusalem. But rest assured, this is not about plants. This is about the Savior of the world. This is about the King of Kings. It's about Jesus entering Jerusalem as the Lamb of God. We need to consider 
the king. And as we consider the king and his presentation into Jerusalem on that day, we see a number of things about him that we need to be reminded of, a number of characteristics of Christ. The first thing that I want us to see as we consider the king is I want us to remember his omnipotence. It shows up in this story. The omnipotence, the power of Jesus shows up in this story. Now, where does it show up? Well, it shows up in the crowds. As Jesus is coming down towards Jerusalem, there are people all around him. Well, who are those people and why are they there? Certainly, there were people who were there as as pilgrims, as travelers along the road um, going to Jerusalem for the Passover. But there were others who were there very specifically to be around Jesus. And they wanted to be around him because he had performed miracles. In the book of John in chapter 12, when this story of the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is shared. We see this verse for us in verses 17 and 18 of John 12. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went out to meet him in his triumphal entry was that they had heard that he had done this sign. The omnipotence of Christ, the power of Christ, caused a crowd to form as he entered Jerusalem. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead, not in some faraway place, but in a town about two miles from Jerusalem's gate, just over the hill. That was the place where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so because of that, people are running out to meet him. We don't know exactly how they found out. There were people that were running around and telling the story. It was the day before Twitter. It was the day before Facebook and Instagram. But certainly it caused quite a stir. People are running out to be around Christ because they were aware of his omnipotence. The crowd around Jesus would have included probably Lazarus and his sisters. The crowd around Jesus would have included not only them, but also blind men who had been made to see and others upon whom Jesus had worked miracles. You see, the crowd around Jesus is a demonstration, a reminder of the omnipotence that Christ had and the miracles that he worked. We need to remember that. The omnipotent king is showing up. Not only is he omnipotent, but also he's omniscient. He's omniscient. He knew all things. Not only could he do all things, but he knew all things. We see that in this encounter about the donkey, right? Verses 2 and following. These very specific statements are made here. It says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus. We see Jesus here demonstrating his omniscience, the fact that he knew all things. Jesus describes a situation in a village ahead of them, a situation he couldn't see. It's not like he pulled out his binoculars and looked ahead and said, yep, that's the donkey I want to ride. No, he just told them exactly as it was. He said, ahead in that village, you're going to find a donkey. Guess what they found in that village? A donkey that had never been ridden, just like Jesus said. It'd be tied at the post, just like Jesus said it would. People would ask the question, just like Jesus said they were going to ask, And they were to take that donkey back to him. His omniscience and what he knew is demonstrated in his declaration of what what his disciples were to do and where they were to go. 
Jesus, in a day before cell phones, couldn't call ahead and make arrangements. It wasn't like getting an Uber. His omniscience looked ahead and understood what was in the village. And he called forth his ride from what was available. The omnipotence of Christ demonstrated in the crowds. The omniscience of Christ demonstrated in what he knew about the village ahead. His authority is also clear here. The authority of Christ is here. We see this in verse 7 as this colt is brought to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat down on this this animal. Now, it's interesting when I say the authority of Jesus is, is demonstrated here, we need to think about the fact that this is an animal that had never been ridden before. Now, that's significant because in Jewish law, in the, in the Old Testament Mosaic law, animals that were used for divine purpose had never done anything else before. They had never been used for another purpose. So an animal that was to be used for sacrifice was raised just for sacrifice. They weren't used for something else. You didn't take your tired old animal that had already done a lot of other work and then offer them as a sacrifice. There were special things. God set aside some animals for divine purpose. The reason why Jesus calls forth a donkey that had never been ridden is because that donkey is going to be used for a divine purpose. Jesus is demonstrating his authority by calling forth an animal that had never been ridden. But think about this. When that animal shows up, Jesus gets on it. Now, have you ever ridden an animal that had never been ridden? I haven't. You know, in all honesty, has anybody here ever done that? Ridden an animal that's never been? We got, we got a few. That's exciting, Kemps. I got to hear this story sometime. But Jesus gets on an animal that had never been ridden, and yet he's able to ride it. I, I once rode a, a, a horse in a horseback ride deal, and this, this, this horse had, had many people ride it, okay? This was a sad and tired horse. And, and yet, what did that horse do when I rode it? It tried to rub me off the entire trip, you know, bumping me against rocks and trees. It knew exactly what it was doing. It did not want me on it, all right? That's an animal that had been ridden, that knew what it was doing. Imagine a wild donkey, a donkey that had never been ridden. It hadn't been broken. And yet Jesus sits on it and rides easily. What does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he had authority over that donkey. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus stands up on the boat to the winds and the waves, and what do they do? stop. Jesus tells the disciples, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and what do the fish do? They jump in the net. Jesus had authority over nature. In Adam, in Adam, God said in, in Genesis 1, have authority over creation, subdue it and rule over it, and yet sin enters the world, and life gets hard for Adam in, in connection with the world in which he lives. But Jesus comes, we saw in Romans 5, as a new Adam, and what does he have authority over? He has authority over all things. So that even an unridden donkey doesn't fight the master who sits upon it. The authority of Christ is demonstrated in this story. His omnipotence, his omniscience, his authority, and also his divinity. His divinity is clear here. We see this in verses 8 to 10 as People are spreading their cloaks out. They're waving these branches like you would do for a king. Verse 9, and and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, meaning save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're quoting there from from Psalm 118. They're singing praise to God. and they're, They're saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. That's what they're singing. Save us now. That's what they're singing. Now, from what you know about the Gospels, what happened usually when people 
said to Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, what would he tell them? Shh, don't tell anybody. You ever thought that's kind of weird? Why did Jesus always say to people, after they would make a declaration that he's the Messiah, why would he always tell them to be quiet? Well, this story helps us know why. Because here, Jesus doesn't tell them to be quiet. Matter of fact, he makes a statement in other gospels, the rocks would even cry out in this moment. It's public knowledge. It's being declared in the streets. And when it is, four days later, they kill him. See, Jesus told them to be quiet in the previous encounters because it wasn't time yet. But when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he knows very well that it is time. He's going there to present himself as the Lamb of God, as a sacrifice for our sins. The divinity of Christ in receiving this praise is evident in this story. Friends, we need to consider the King. We need to consider the King. You know, sometimes in our culture, we can trivialize Jesus. We make him something less. We use his name as a punchline of a joke. We use his name in vain in different ways. We think about Christ, it's, it's, it's something less, and yet this passage lets us know that the one who approached Jerusalem, the one who reigns in heaven today is the Son of God, the omnipotent, omniscient one with all authority who reigns over all things. That is who is approaching Jerusalem. Let us not forget who Jesus is. Let us consider the King of kings. As we gather to remember the death of Christ and his resurrection, all of that takes greater significance and weight when we understand who he really was. Consider the time. Consider the king. And the third thing I want us to see, consider his coming. Consider his coming. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem in, in, this, in this encounter. He arrives here in the first century, making his presentation in 33 AD. But the presentation that Jesus makes in Mark 11 is a reminder that Jesus is also coming again in a way that parallels this coming in many ways. And when we look at the triumphal entry of Christ in Mark 11, we need to be reminded that Jesus is going to come again one day. And so I want to make a set of comparisons between the first coming of Christ in Mark 11 and the second coming of Christ, which is to happen at a future time. The first comparison has to do with location. Location. Where did Jesus enter? Well, Mark 11.1 1 lets us know that Jesus approached Jerusalem from the east. He approached Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Jesus approached Jerusalem from the east, down the Mount of Olives. That's how he came in his presentation the first time. It's also the geography that Jesus will use on his second coming. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, in verse 4, a prophecy is given about the, re the return of the Messiah, or the coming of the Messiah, and this is what it says. It says, On that day, 
Messiah's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. See, we have here a declaration of what it will be like when Christ returns to the earth. When he came the first time, he came down the Mount of Olives and he approached Jerusalem from the east. When he comes again, he will come to the Mount of Olives and he will descend the Mount of Olives and he'll approach Jerusalem from the east. Now, how do we know that Zechariah 14 is not talking about when Jesus came the first time? Do anybody see any clues in the passage that would let us know? How about the separation of the Mount of Olives? It's still one mountain. But when Christ returns in Zechariah 14, when he returns to the earth, looking at this future time, the mountain will split in two. This is, is maybe gives us an indication as to why some in the first century didn't recognize Christ coming as such. Yes, he was coming down the Mount of Olives, but it was still intact. We know, of course, now that it's talking about two events, the first coming and the second coming, but the first coming foreshadows the second. The location is the same. Second thing of a point of comparison between his first coming and his second coming doesn't just deal with his location, but deals with the purpose of his coming, the purpose of his coming. When Jesus came the first time in Mark 11, he comes riding on a donkey. We saw that in verses 5 to 7. Now, when, you might wonder, why did Jesus come in riding on a donkey? Well, this is not something that is absolutely foreign to a Jewish frame of understanding, even for a Jewish king. Because when David presented his son Solomon to the people in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, Solomon rode in on David's donkey. It's a, a presentation in peace. It says that the king is coming not to wage war, but is coming in peace. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey indicates his humility, yes, but it also indicates his, his, his kingship and the fact that he is coming in peace. One of Jesus' titles in the book of Isaiah is the Prince of Peace. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we saw that the peace that Jesus delivered was peace between God and man. Jesus' presentation as the Lamb of God was to bring peace between God and men. His first coming was about peace. But the purpose of his second coming is different. The second coming of Christ, he comes not on a donkey, but on a war horse. We see this in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, in verse 11. The Apostle John gives us the prophecy where he looks and he sees a future day when Christ is going to return to the earth. This is what he sees. He says in 1911, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. See, the first coming of Christ, he came in peace. The second coming of Christ, though he comes on a war horse, he comes to bring judgment to the earth. If you've ever wondered, when will justice come to this earth? You see injustice happening. You see the martyrdom of Christians around the world. You wonder when justice will come to the earth. Revelation 19 tells us it's certain it's coming. Just as the clock was just right and Christ came at just the right time the first time, when he comes again, it will be just at the right time. It will be coming in justice and in judgment upon the earth. Revelation 19 lets us know that. The purpose of the coming is different. 
But not just the location and not just the purpose, but also the effect is different. The effect is different. Now, when you look at Mark 11 in your Bible, right above it, these are not inspired uh, things. The, the, the Word of God is certainly inspired, but there are italicized subject headings that were added later that help us find things in our Bibles. In my Bible, just above Mark 11, it gives a title to this section, and it calls it the triumphal entry. Now, does it say that in your Bible? The triumphal entry. Now, where does that word triumph come from? Well, the word triumph comes from a Roman idea and understanding. It was a Roman presentation of a of, of victorious general. And in order to get a triumphal parade back in Rome, a Roman general would have to go and kill or capture at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. And a Roman general who had killed or captured 5,000 enemy soldiers would come back to Rome and they would throw a big party for him, a big parade. They called it a triumph. That's the Roman triumph. That's the background. When Jesus comes, though, when he comes, what's the effect of his coming? Did he kill 5,000? No. But Acts 4.4 4 lets us know that the effect of his crucifixion and resurrection immediately leads to how many people coming to faith in Christ? 5,000. Let's us know that the triumph of Christ is quite different, right? He comes to offer life. He came the first time on the donkey into Jerusalem, presenting his life as a sacrifice that would save a multitude. But when Christ returns the second time, the effect will be different. In the passage we saw earlier in Revelation 19, verse 21, as it concludes that section, this is the description of what happens when Christ returns. The one who rides the white horse rides into battle, into judgment. Verse 21 says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now that's graphic, but it's a demonstration of what is to come when Christ returns the second time. When he returns the second time, it's not to offer life, but it's to offer judgment upon those who have rejected him. As certain as the first coming, the second coming is just as certain. The location, the purpose, the effect. Lastly, we see a comparison of the audience. A comparison of the audience. Who was present at the time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem the first time? Well, we saw earlier that many of them were people who had been impacted by the miraculous actions that Jesus had done. One of them was probably Lazarus. Lazarus is described for us in the book of John, chapter 11 and verse 44. When Jesus calls him forth from the tomb, it says, The man, Lazarus, who had died, came out of the tomb, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The people who witnessed the first coming of Christ were the blind who could now see. They were the dead who then lived. Who will be present to see Christ at his second coming? Well, the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4 gives us a clue to that end. In verses 16 and 17, when the apostle Paul talks about the return of Christ, and he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with him forever. 
Who will be present with Christ at his second coming? Who will be in the audience? Those who were dead who then live. Guess who that is, friends? That's us. That's any who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They get to witness the second coming of Christ to the earth. Now, when we consider the time and the certainty of the king coming again, we need to to ponder for a moment and say, how is it that we can ride with Jesus on the day of his return instead of being judged by Jesus on the day of his return? And the answer to that is, is really quite simple. The New Testament is very clear for us. The way that we ride with Christ at his return is by embracing by faith the gift that Christ offers us, his death on the cross as full payment for the penalty of our sins. If we embrace by faith what Christ has done for us, then we have the privilege of riding with him on the day of his return instead of being judged by him on the day of his return. When we read and consider the story of his coming and his presentation in Mark 11, we should never, ever forget that he's coming again and we should prepare ourselves for his coming by embracing Christ that we might ride with him in his return. Now, there may be some here today who want to avoid the return of Christ. You want to avoid the return of Christ in some way. But just as his timing was certain the first time, it will be certain again, and there is nothing that can stop the coming of the king. But there have been people who have tried in history. You know, last October, I had the privilege of going to, to the nation of Israel, and I snapped this picture. And, and this, this is a picture from the Mount of Olives looking east towards the city of Jerusalem. This is the same path that Jesus will take upon his return. We saw that in Zechariah 14. We saw that in 11.1. Both his first and his second coming will follow a similar path from the Mount of Olives towards Israel in the east. Now, what's interesting about this picture is you can see that someone has tried to stop the coming of the Messiah. And if you look close, you can see it. See, the walls around Jerusalem were rebuilt Uh, by Suleiman about 500 years ago, a a Turkish Muslim leader. And when he rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, he opened every gate that was there in the first century except one, the eastern gate. That two little arches, if you can see, if your eyes are are strong enough, right in the middle, there's there's the, 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 the higher portion of the wall. There's two arches there that are both filled in. Why did Suleiman fill those two arches with stones. Every other gate was open. Why was that one closed? Furthermore, if you look directly in front of that wall, you'll notice several things on the ground there. And it's, it's hard. It's funny, like, say, it, see some rocks on the ground in front. Of, there's rocks everywhere in Israel. But if you, if you could see it up close, and if my, photo, my camera was better, you'd notice that there's a cemetery right there in front of that gate. And what Suleiman did was he closed off the eastern gate, and he put a Muslim cemetery out front. And this was his understanding. If the Jewish Messiah is to approach the city from the east, then I'm going to block his way of entrance. And I'm going to put a cemetery in front because no good Jewish rabbi would ever walk through a Muslim cemetery. 
And in this way, Suleiman thought he was protecting the city from the coming of the king. He thought he could avoid it. But here, here's the thing, friends, and just the absurdity of this picture. Doesn't it remind you of this? What's going to happen to the Mount of Olives when Jesus comes back? It's going to split in two. Those stones don't stand a chance blocking that gate, do they? And, and furthermore, what's going to happen to people when Christ returns? They're going to resurrect from the dead to judgment or to life. Jesus has a unique relationship with cemeteries. Suleiman tried but was absolutely unable to stop the coming of the king. And guess what? We also will not be able to stop the coming of the king. Therefore, when we we look at and we see the presentation of Christ in Mark 11, we should be reminded that, that you and I, need to prepare ourselves for the reality that in his time, he is coming back to this earth, and we need to submit our lives in faith to the king. Have you done that? Those that you know, have, have they done that? We have a unique opportunity in history right now, friends, to trust Christ with our lives and to help those around us who don't know him come to know him because he's coming back. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the power of your word and and history and and how you have connected all of these these dots for us in your word so that we could know that Jesus is the Son of God who presented himself in Jerusalem as a sacrifice for our sins and is coming back one day. And Father, I pray right now for all in this room. I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here who has never placed their faith and their trust in Christ. I pray that today they would do so, that they would prepare their hearts for the inevitable reality of the return of the king. Father, Suleiman could not stop it, and neither can we. And Father, those of us who know Jesus and have trusted in him, we look forward to that day, and we long for our friends and our family to also come into a relationship with you through Christ, that they might ride with you on that day as well. Father, I pray that you would give faith in the hearts of any here who have never trusted in you, that they might trust you even right now in this moment and believe that Jesus is the King of kings. We thank you, Father, and we pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. Amen.